Good morning, Jubilee. Good morning. I invite you to stand to your feet as we continue in worship. Now it is time to worship God over his word. Amen. You can turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, 12th chapter. If you're in need of a Bible, there should be one that is in front of you in your pew. Feel free to grab that and follow along with us. Ecclesiastes, the 12th chapter. We're going to look at verse 9 through verse number 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like golds, and like nails firmly, firmly fixed are the collected sayings they are given by one shepherd. My son, be aware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. I invite you to pray with me one more time. Father, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Would souls be revived in here this morning? Father, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Would you grant us much wisdom this morning? The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoice in the heart. Father, would hearts be filled with joy because of your word this morning? The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Well, Father, open up our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your word today. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Would we be ones who fear you greatly? The rules, Father, your rules are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Father, would your word be this to us this morning? More to be desired than riches, sweeter than the honeycomb. Would you be magnified in how we hear your word today? Would you be magnified in how we do your word? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. For 12 chapters, we have heard what the preacher of Ecclesiastes has said. From his investigation, we have considered various Heat Academy lessons for life lived underneath the sun. As we live life underneath this Genesis 3 broken, cursed world, we have the question of how do we live underneath this sun? And the answer that we've been putting in front of you for 12 weeks now is we live above the sun, right? So let me remind you of the Heat Academy lessons that we have gone through for the last 12 weeks. You might remember some of them. Lesson number one, under the sun, we gain nothing. Above the sun, we gain everything. Nothing under the sun, lesson number two, nothing under the sun gives us what we are searching for. 
but above the sun, the search ends. Lesson number three. Under the sun, there is a time for everything. Above the sun, the triune God knows the time for everything, and he makes everything beautiful in that time. Lesson number four. Under the sun, injustice is a reality. But above the sun, injustice has an end date. Amen? Lesson number five. We are under the sun. All of us live underneath the sun in this Genesis 3 broken, cursed world. The triune God is above the sun. Therefore, we are to worship accordingly. Lesson number six. Under the sun, who knows? But above the sun, those who see know. Lesson number seven. Under the sun, wisdom is necessary. It's better than folly, but limited. But above the sun, wisdom is a person. Jesus, and wisdom is the power of God. What lesson number am I on? I didn't number my bullet points. What number, what number am I on? Lesson number, huh? Nine, eight? The next lesson. <laughs> Under the sun, our appetites endlessly wander. They're always going after something, but above the sun, our appetites are endlessly satisfied. Next lesson. Under the sun, Youth marches into age towards death. But above the sun, a God-centered joy and a remembrance of the Creator is encouraged. Twelve lessons or eleven lessons at this point for life lived underneath the sun. Chapter 12 in Ecclesiastes, verse number 8, represents the last words of the preacher. He ends how he began. Hebel's of Hebels. All is Hebel. Last week, Jonathan gave us a very helpful analogy to understand and to capture this phrase, Hebel, and it's the word picture, fog. Think about the last time you were in fog. When was the last time that you experienced deep and dense and debilitating fog? Life under the sun without any triune involvement, without any revelation from God breaking in, life under the sun is indeed like fog. It has the mystery of fog. It has the brevity of fog that doesn't lift quickly. And if you stay in this fog, there is a senseless futility or a fruitlessness of this fog. This ends the autobiographical words of the preacher he is no longer speaking at this point. Let's put his mic down, as it were. This morning, we want to consider the last six verses of the book that moves from the first-person perspective of the preacher to the third-person perspective of the editor, who then tells us how the preacher said what he did, why the preacher said it, and then finally, the conclusion in the end of the matter. Look at verse number 9 and verse number 10 in Ecclesiastes 12. Verse number 9 and verse number 10 tells us how the preacher said his words. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. 
In other words, what we learn here is that the preacher here in Ecclesiastes spoke his words with care to his audience. He had a care for them, and he wanted them to understand and wrestle with what he was saying. His words were spoken with artistry. We saw wonderful word pictures like under the sun and that there's a time for everything, everything, beautiful language that captures our imagination and captures our attention. And then, of course, he spoke his words with integrity. Look at verse number 11 and verse number 12. This tells us why the preacher said what he said. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. The words of the wise are like goads. I I know what a goad is. A goad was tools, was a tool that shepherds use. It was either a sharp stick or it was a stick that had nails sticking out of it that would help the stubborn animal move along. Animals stuck in the way or the donkey refuses to go and you, you tap them a little bit with the goad to get them to move along, right? This is a good tool. It's gold. Wisdom is like it. This is a good tool for those who are enamored with living life underneath the sun. For those who are caught living life underneath the sun in this Genesis 3 world, the wisdom, these sayings are gold that kind of moves you along, right? Why did the preacher speak what he has spoken to us over the last 12 chapters except to prod us to live life above the sun? And now we are at the conclusion. We've come to the end of the matter and we've come to our final Heat Academy lesson, which I'll give you at the end. Verse number 13 and 14, it gives us two commandments and it gives us two reasons for the commandments. Verse number 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Commandment number one, fear God. Commandment number two, keep his commandments. Reason number one, for this is the whole duty of man. And reason number two, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The bulk of this sermon is going to deal with the overarching commandment, which is to fear God. By the, by the end, by God's grace, I hope that we will see how the second commandment and the two other reasons fit into this overarching commandment to fear God. Question, how does your heart react to the word fear? What, what happens on the inside of you when you hear this word fear? particularly connected with God, to fear God, right? One of the effects of not only living in a Genesis 3 broken world and not also being broken in and of ourselves due to sin is that we both are afraid, we experience fear, and we experience fearful things. It's actually stunning to consider how many things that people are afraid of. The topics of fear range from fear of speaking in public. A couple weeks ago, one of our young children, Mr. Aran's son, was at Cornelius, I believe, came to me one time after service, and he said, Pastor Lewis, he says, if you're afraid to preach today, I'm ready to preach. 
I'll keep that in my back pocket, that if I ever have a fear of public speaking, young Cornelius is going to come and give the thus saith the Lord. Amen? This topic that ranges from fear of speaking in public, which is quite common, common to something that's not as common, which is, which is something called a, a, a fear called genuphobia. Anybody know what a genuphobia is? A genuphobia is somebody that's, that's scared of knees. That'd be, a hard, that'd be a hard life if, that's, if somebody is suffering from genuphobia. Someone can have a fear of failure, which is much more common, and even also have another common fear like the fear of spiders. Right? What do you fear? What do you fear? And notice Ecclesiastes 12.13 says that we are to add God to the list of fears supposed to add God to the list of fears, right? The question is, though, what does it mean to fear God? Are we to fear him like we fear somebody might fear spiders? Are we to fear him like somebody might fear heights or closed-in spaces? Now, a major portion of my preparation this week for this sermon came by reading John Bunyan. How many of y'all know who John Bunyan is? Anybody know who John Bunyan is? John Bunyan is famous for his book, The Pilgrim's Progress. This book is so famous, it's been translated into over 200 languages. Up until this week, I've never read anything other by other, I never read anything by John Bunyan other than The Pilgrim's Progress. But this week, I came across a treatise that he has. It's called A Treatise on Fear, on the Fear of God, and it is pure gold, pure gold of which I cannot improve. I told Jens on Saturday that I almost want to just get up and just read it to you because it just blessed my soul this week. Bunyan, and more importantly, the scriptures just came crashing in and crashing in and crashing in to give a heightened awareness of the fear of God. So what you're going to hear a good amount, you're going to hear a lot of scripture today. Some of it I'll be telling you to turn to. Others I'm going to uh, just be saying to you because my hope is, is, is that something happens in your heart that by God's grace happened in my heart is after a text, after a text, after scripture, after scripture, there's just, it's just something happened in the heart to say, man, Father, I want this. I mean, I know I and of myself have nothing to say to you of any worth. If I don't bring you the scriptures, if we don't bring you the Bible, we're, we're all wasting our time here. Let's go back to the question that I just asked. What does it mean to fear God? This is an important question to ask because what we see at the end of Ecclesiastes is something that we see all over the Bible. We see it everywhere. In fact, we can't read any part of the Bible and not come across this command to fear God. Consider this for a second. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Deuteronomy 6.13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. The historical books, consider Joshua 24.14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. The poetry books, consider Psalm 2, verse number 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The major prophets, think of Isaiah 8, verse 13. But the Lord of hosts, him shall you honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. The minor prophets, consider Malachi 1, verse number 6. A son honors his father. This is God talking here. A son honors his father and a servant his master. This is God. If, if, if then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts. 
The Gospels, consider the very words of Christ in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both, body and, uh, both soul and body in hell. Acts 9.31, consider this. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The epistles, think about the epistles, 1 Peter 1.17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each, other's, each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And then the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 14, verse 17. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Every part of the Bible speaks to this important topic. Every single part of it. Before we answer the question, though, I want you to consider first and foremost, for a moment, let your heart steep on this for a little bit, the object of fear. If you're in fear over something, that fear has an object. And our text tells us, once again, of whom the object is. Fear God. Who's the object of fear? God. Fear, or in other places, the Lord. The object of our fear is God. And he's the Lord. Listen to Bunyan. He said this in talking about the true and the living God. He says, the true, this is talking about God, true and living God. This is the description of him. Maker of the worlds, upholder of all things by the word of his power, that incomprehensible majesty in comparison of whom all nations are less than a drop in a bucket. And then the small dust of the balance. This is he who fills heaven and earth and is everywhere present with the children of men, beholding the evil and the good, for he has set his eyes upon all their ways. How many of y'all know that all week long, all week long, we are bombarded constantly with objects of fear? Fear of the squad, fear of the wall, fear of four more years, fear of immigration, Fear of losing reproductive rights. Fear of losing religious rights. Fear of eating too much, fill in the blank. Fear of climate control. Fear of your fantasy player tearing an ACL in preseason camp. Fear of stock market, right? Fear of the unknown and the untrusted other. And on and on and on and on, week in, day in, week out, bombarded with objects of fear. I mean, I know that all of these Fears obscure our vision of the one worthy object of our fear. The one worthy object of our fear. Someone might ask, well, why is God a worthy object of my fear? This is a good question. I want you to consider three things here. Consider the Lord's greatness and his majesty. Consider his greatness and consider his majesty. Here, is there anyone greater and is there anyone more majestic? I love when God drops the mic concerning his dopeness. Y'all like, what? Dope, what? I, I, love, I love when God brags on himself. He's the only one who can do it because it's true. Right? I love when he drops the mic like in Isaiah 44, 8, and he says this, Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not of any. <laughs> 
I don't know. Is there anyone else that's better and greater than me? His greatness and his majesty is such, a, is such a sort that when humans encounter his greatness and majesty in scriptures, it has a tangible effect on their bodies. Right? Think about when John, the beloved disciple, encountered the resurrected Revelation Christ, the one whom he walked with for three years, the one whom he ate food with and, 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 and got it in with. Um, do you remember what it says in Revelation after he sees Christ? He, he sees the one whose head is white like wool. His eyes are like flames of fire. His, his feet are like burnished brown, bronze. His voice is like the, the roar of many waters. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. I fell at his feet as, I, as, die, as, as, as all the life left my body and boom, I just hit the ground. Jubilee, do the eyes of your heart have fresh encounters with the majesty and the greatness of the one who is the worthy object of our fear? He's the worthy object of our fear. Consider how great the name of the Lord is. The name of the Lord is great because his name unpacks his nature for us, right? His name tells us who he is and what we learn who he is. when we learn who he is, we say amen with Isaiah 50. 919. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from west, from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun. Consider how great his word is. The greatness and the power and the capability of his discerning word to, to, to get it in with every single thought and intention to the bottom of our hearts. His word makes him a worthy object of fear. These brief considerations alone, I haven't even talked about the greatness of his salvific work for us in Christ. The greatness of these three alone provide more than enough reason to have the Lord as the worthy object of your fear. There are many different ways that people respond to fear, right? Some run away, some freeze up, some fight. What type of response does the fear of the Lord produce? What, 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 what should happen in my heart? John Bunyan here is quite helpful again because he provides two categories of fear. His first category is an ungodly fear of God. An ungodly fear of God. And the second category is a godly fear of God. In your Bible, shoot over to Exodus 20 real quick. As you're turning there, I'll, I'll set this story up. Exodus 20. In Exodus 20, we're at the part of the story of Israel's journey from having been released from bondage by the magnificent, glorious, ridiculously powerful hands of the Lord. They have now crossed the Red Sea, and then the same God that delivered them from bondage, they are about to meet this God at the foot of the mountain. Exodus 20. Look at verse number 18. Since now when all the people saw the thunder, right, use your imagination, put yourself in the midst of the people of Israel right now. Now when all the people saw the thunder and flashings of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. You got that right. 
right? Don't act all hard in here now, right? Don't, don't, don't act like that. Don't act like if you saw a mountain smoking and you heard a sound of a trumpet and lightning was lighting up the background, don't act like, yeah, that's, yeah I see that all the time. I see that all the time. Don't act like that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Fear. They were afraid. They were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen, but don't let God speak lest we die. Is there a category in your mind that if you heard the voice of the Lord, you may die? No, 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 no. Moses, you chop it up with us. We can't endure the powerful voice of the Lord that Psalm says breaks cedars. You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you and the fear of him that God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. And the people stood afar off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Did you hear what Moses said to them? He said, do not fear. God has come to test you that you may fear. Do not fear, fear. Do not be afraid, fear. Bunyan again. He says, we see that a fear, that there's a fear that is forbidden, and we see that there's a fear that's commended. What's the difference? I want you to notice how fear caused one group of people to request distance. I don't want any part of that God. I want you to notice how another fear caused Moses to draw near. One type of fear created distance. I don't want nothing to do with that. Another type of fear drew near in obedience. The effects of ungodly of the ungodly fear of God is a terror that wants to flee away from God, where godly fear is in awe and a reverence that causes one to draw near to the Lord in worship. One type of fear, which Bunyan calls an ungodly fear, wants to go away. It's a godly fear that draws near and that brings near. This is not the first time or the last time that we see this type of ungodly fear that creates a distance from God. It's a question for you. Was Adam's, in, in, in the beginning of the Bible, was his response after he disobeyed, was his response an ungodly fear or was his response a godly fear? Genesis 3.10 gives us the answer. As Adam now had to answer God's pointed question of where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Created distance, this fear, this terror, particularly in light of judgment, caused him to create distance. This ungodly type of fear that runs from God, instead of towards him, this type of fear even finds representation not only in the first book of the Bible, but also in the last book of the Bible. You can check this one out later, Revelation 6, 14 through 17. It tells us of a picture of a people, once the sky vanishes and, and it's rolled up, 
when they see the person on the throne, they actually call out for the rocks to fall on them, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. Let's be a people, Jubilee. Let's be a people who search our hearts to make sure that this type of ungodly fear doesn't take up residency in our lives. There's a type of fear that can rise up in your soul, especially underneath the hot spotlight of the conviction of sin that would urge you to flee from God, to flee from Him. And there is a type of fear that causes one to be afraid of God and not love Him, to be scared of God but not have a desire birthed in you to be governed by His commandments. This is not the fear of the Lord that our passage is encouraging us and commending to us this morning. The fear of God, that is a godly fear. It is that which has apprehended a sense of the majesty, the awe, the greatness, the mercy, the splendor, the power, the love, and the holiness of God, albeit, you know, even however small and in trembling wonder, once again, however small, approaches the Father approaches the Father in obedient worship, honor, reverence, and joy that trembles at his crazy goodness. It's this godly fear that draws us near. Hebrews 12 takes us back to the scene of a mountain. You're in Exodus. Shoot over to Hebrews for me. I want you to see this. Hebrews 12, verse number 18 through 28. Hebrews 12, 18 to 28, we find ourselves back to the foot of another mountain. Look at verse number 18. This is for those who are in Christ now. It says, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire in darkness and gloom in a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose Words made the hearers beg that no further messages might be spoken to them. That's what we just read in Ezekiel and in Exodus 2. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, yet he still approached. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn. You have come. You've come to God, the judge of all, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Skip down to verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This godly fear is one of the sweetest gifts, one of the sweetest gifts that we get as a believer in Christ. When we were placed our, when we placed our faith in Christ, we became partakers of the new covenant. And don't forget what Jeremiah the prophet said about the new covenant. Read it when you get home, Jeremiah 32, 39 through 40. Part of the new covenant is God said, I will put my fear in your heart. Why? So that you may not turn away from me. That you won't create distance from me. I'm going to put a type of fear in your heart that's actually going to draw you closer to me. This is the godly 
type of fear. This is the type of fear that, that old Jubilee would we grow greatly in. Amen? And we will grow greatly in. This is the type of fear that does depart from something. It departs from evil, and it doesn't depart from the Lord. What does this godly fear come from? What does it come from? I mentioned one of them already. The godly fear of God comes from new covenant promises. Let me use a different word to describe it. This, this godly fear of God comes by the grace of God. It was by God's grace that he loved you and saved you in Christ and made you a recipient of new covenant promises. It was by God's grace that you have a new heart in Christ where this godly fear has been put in. It's by God's grace that his word makes an impression on you that causes you to not want to wander, wander away from it but to do it. It's by God's grace that you have faith that connects you to Christ. It's by God's grace that you have tasted the love and the kindness and the forgiveness in your soul. And alongside of David, we say, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand but with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Isn't that such an odd passage? That's such odd logic. Do you have a, a, a category in your mind of a forgiveness that's so good to your soul it actually causes you to be in awe and tremble and fear and it draws you to Christ? Draws you to him? Hmm. Forgiveness so awe-inspiring, so jaw-dropping, so magnificent to your soul that it causes you to fear God because he is so good. It is by God's grace that we have this fear. Now, as we consider where this fear comes from, I want you to notice who is missing. We're missing fear. This fear doesn't come from us. We don't bring this fear about. It's the work of God. Let me bring this thing home here. What comes from this godly fear? If you have this godly fear in your heart, what should come from it? Here are seven things that, that just bless my soul. What comes from it? A godly reverence comes from this fear. Watchfulness over your soul and over your life comes from this fear. Self-denial comes from this type of fear. Compassion to brothers and sisters in need come from this fear. Prayer comes from this godly fear. You find yourself praying more. Humility comes from this godly fear. And a delightful conformity to God's word comes from this fear. Jubilee, how are we to grow in this godly fear? How do we delight more and more in this fear? Learn, listen to some of these. Learn to distinguish it from ungodly fear. Grow in the knowledge of the new covenant. Set before your eyes the being and the majesty of Christ. Keep the authority of the word on your mind. Study the excellencies of the grace of fear. Be much in prayer. Father, unite my heart to fear your name. And then number eight, devote yourself. Devote yourself to the godly fear of God. Give yourself to it. I love how Bunyan says it. Addict yourself to it. Addict yourself to the godly fear of God. I got way too much stuff in my manuscript. Let me ask one more question that really blessed my soul this week. Bunyan asked this question, how do I know if I have this godly fear of God in me? How do I know if I have it? 
how I know I don't have the fear that pushes away, but the fear that draws me near. Just bless my socks off this week. He said this, if I should say that desires, true, sincere desires to fear him is fear itself, I should not say amiss. A person's desire to be good, to believe, to love, to hope, and to fear God flows from the nature of grace itself. In other words, he's saying this, check your heart right now. Do you have a desire in you that's a godly desire that's drawing you to the Father? That's evidence of the grace of fear in your life in and of itself. If there's a desire in you to draw near, and a desire, even if it's small, if there's a desire to fear God like this, give God glory because that's his work. I'm out of time. I'm out of time. The end of Ecclesiastes, remember, gave us two reasons. Fear God, keep his commandments. I think those are the same thing. To fear God is to keep his commandments. Then it says, reason number one, this is the whole duty of a person. In other words, this is, this is what it's all about. This is, this, is, this is what it's all about. This is what makes us human. It's, it's, it, one person says that it is, it is uh, he says, it's our whole happiness. It's what life is all about to fear God. And then it says another reason why we should fear God is because we know judgment is coming. I love how Ecclesiastes ends with that because that points us to the gospel. In Christ, your judgment has already taken place. You've been declared not guilty. Now for the rest of your days, go forth with godly, with godly fear.